0: have arrived. They snuck in the back door. <laughs> you spend your whole life doing the first few albums and then suddenly everybody needs your attention. Erica much, music. The invention of the VJ.
1: A flashback on the career that made them who they are today. On this episode. It's never been about my accomplishment, my, because I know the myriad things that have to line up for you to get a break. I know that you need the grace of others. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to Rapid Facts. I'm George Strombolopoulos. Uh, Maybe some election stuff a little later uh, later on, but first let's do some headlines right off the top. This is Erica M's Reinvention Reinvention of the the VJ. VJ. Now, here's Erica M.
0: Hey there, I'm Erica M, and thank you so much for tuning into what I'm guessing will be a pretty memorable episode of my Reinvention of the VJ podcast. My guest today is equal parts punk rocker and social justice warrior. He's been described as a superstar of much music and a mama's boy. He's had to navigate both failure and adoration, but he hasn't let either one define him. Instead, he innovates and he stays true to himself. Of course, I'm talking about one of Canada's cultural curators, George Strombolopoulos. Before we jump into our interview, if this is your first time tuning into my podcast, let me give you a bit of background. So Reinvention of the VJ is my unscripted and and up-close-and-personal conversation with the eclectic and much-loved on-air hosts that you may have grown up watching on Much Music. While our personalities and approaches are pretty different, there is one thing that really we have all in common. Each of us played a small part in Canada's most influential pop culture platform. And then we left at different times for different reasons. Each of us took off. We went on our next adventures. And really, it's that story of what happens after much. The reinvention and the resilience and the luck and the struggle and perspective. I love perspective. That's what really intrigues me. Now, this is... I would call it a passion project for me. For the last 14 years, I've been running one of Canada's largest platforms for moms. It's called YMC.ca. And my job has been connecting moms with brands. Now, 14 years, let me tell you something. It's a long time. It's longer than I was on air at much, which was 13 years. So I'm hoping that this show will give me some food for thought while I consider what my next chapter of my life could look like but really what's super important about the show is you I'm, I'm really making this show for you and I'm hoping that it's going to be a trip down memory lane for you, but also that you find some interesting tidbits or insights into what it takes to get what you want in life and, or to reinvent because I know a lot of us are going through that right now and dealing with tough times. Maybe our conversation will change the way you think about success And in any case, I'm really hoping that somewhere in my conversation with George today, you will find ideas that will inspire you to look at your life a little bit differently. Also, in today's show, I've got some really interesting questions from listeners for George. They're really a lot of fun. And if you stay tuned at the end of the show, I'll tell you how you can join in and be part of another uh, episode on this podcast. So now it's time to introduce my guest on Reinvention of the VJ. Here he is, George Strombolopoulos. George, hey, hey, thank you hey, so hey. much. Do nice I call you, you Strombo? Like no, what no. is, what do you like?
1: Just call me George, what call me like? George. Okay. Yeah, Strombo just happened because Strombolopoulos is an insane last name to, to look at and then have to try to pronounce it. George <laughs> is fine. Okay.
0: It's hard to believe, but the first time you and I, you and I ever worked together was like a month ago, right? But the first time ever, and we worked together on a Facebook Live to support Music Counts, which is the charity that the Junos supports uh, to fund music education in schools. Mm-hmm. It was a great conversation, and while you were talking, you you mentioned how your mom made you practice piano to help you focus and it made me curious to know more about this mom of yours. Tell me about your mom and how she raised you.
1: I mean, what, what can I say about Mary? Uh, my mother is, I was raised by a single mom. Um, my old man uh, split, I think when I was, I think I might've been around seven years old. So my mother, it was me and my uh, sister who's named Natasha. She's a few years younger than me. Um, and yeah, we grew up in yeah, it was an interesting time because it was. It, we grew up in Toronto, uh, West Side. So I don't know who knows the city, but I grew up in Rexdale. So Jana and Wilson in and Rexdale, pretty rough neighborhoods, compromised neighborhoods, and then Malton, which is right by the airport. So my mother was just this. I think she was eighteen or nineteen when she had me. I don't know. Whoa. She was really young. Wow. You know, she's a single mother. Uh, we were broke beyond belief, and she was just this amazing powerhouse I always just think of my mom as the wilderness I just look at my mom and I'm like you're the wilderness and she she's this beautiful strong thing that's in this tiny little package you know I'm the first person in my family born in Canada right everybody in my family were immigrants and and are immigrants and we grew up in that immigrant experience Um, I'll just give you an example because there's a million stories I could tell you but we were so, my mom couldn't afford a babysitter and she she used to drive, uh, she used to deliver a newspaper in the morning uh, for various newspapers. She had two jobs uh, uh, during the day to raise us, but she couldn't afford a babysitter because we could barely make ends meet. So what she used to do was drive me to the public library in Rexdale and bring me inside and then ask the librarians not to let me leave. I'm like seven years old. And... So the librarians essentially were my babysitters and they would just hand me books and I would read all day. She would then pick me up for for lunch. And after that, she would take me down the street to a senior citizen's home there. And she would make me go in this, I'm the kid. She'd make me go in the senior citizen's home and she would say to me, go find somebody and talk to them. Learn from them and be company. They're alone and they they need to know that people care about them. And you need to hear stories from people that have lived a life you'll never live. So this is the 70s and early 80s. So I basically would spend my life, you know, and on the weekends with my family, uh, my grandmother, my uncle, my aunt. But during the week, honestly, it was libraries and senior citizens' homes. And it was. And my mother was. It was really important to her that it wasn't. This wasn't just for my benefit. She she kept saying it's your responsibility to be there for people who don't have people. And that, so that's kind of a little, just a, I talked to her years later about this and she said, she's like, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just trying anything I could, you know, I'm a rough boy. I'm a pretty angry young kid too. And I'm, I've still got that fight in me. And she could see it that I was a pretty rough kid then. And it didn't take much for a, a kid like me to go down the wrong path. So she was just trying everything she could to keep me on the straight and narrow and to, and to, and to, and to find because she knew that telling me to fit in wasn't going to work. So try as she might. So she tried really hard just to get me to see what my responsibility was in this life. And it wasn't about, and she used to say to me, she's like, look, you're special to me. She called me Bucky, right? She used to, re- she read Jack London's call of the wild and the dog named Buck had big brown eyes. So she called me Bucky and she said, listen, Bucky, you're really special to me, but you're not special. You're the same as everybody else out there, and that's a good thing. You don't want to walk around life thinking you're special. You're not. You matter to me, but you're just, everybody's supposed to matter to you. And I would look think back, Erica. She was like twenty-five. We <laughs> we grew up below the poverty line, and she way below the poverty line. And we're, she was twenty-five, just trying to keep it together with my sister and I. It was pretty. She's a pretty remarkable woman. I get really emotional thinking about her. Like, I really do. And I, I'm a grown ass person. And when I start telling stories about my mom, I have to kind of stop myself because it's like, oh,
0: shit.
1: <laughs> you know, I got tell you, It's incredible.
0: You didn't go that other way. Why didn't you get all fucked up? I don't understand.
1: I'm lucky. I suppose there's a few things, right? Number one, uh, uh, the privilege of having uh, a home filled with love. You know, my mother, that, this was the thing. She used to always say, yeah, that's part of it, right? A privilege, At a home filled with love. I used to hear people talk about what a broken home is, and they would be describing the, the 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 mechanics of what would be considered my home. But I was like, no, my home's not broken. My home, I'm in better shape than most people I know who have two parents, right? Because <laughs> I had this love in my home, uh, which is really important. Like, look, my mom and I didn't get along very well. You know, we didn't get along on everything, but we were never mean to each other. We... We we bonded a lot over making each other laugh, which was important to us. So I think that's part of the reason. Another reason uh, I just got lucky with brain chemistry, like my brain chemistry didn't betray me. And I think that I know that a lot of people I I grew up with, you know, shit in the wiring changed, and you know, and so you know, when when we were young and like I've been straight edge, I've been clean for twenty five years, but. Know, a lot of people who do stuff when you're young it could it, it could rewire your brain it didn't happen to me so I recognize my luck uh in that respect and I'll tell you another thing which I think is really crucial is my mom didn't put any and nobody in my family did and I think this is a real beautiful thing of coming from this like deeply blue-collar family of immigrants is they never put any pressure on me to do anything for a living I, in fact Erica I don't even remember my mother ever asking me what my career plans were. People in my family didn't have careers. We got jobs, right? And so I never grew up feeling like I needed to achieve anything. And my mother used to always say, and my uncle, my grandmother, my aunt, the same thing. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. What matters is the person you are so I, they didn't care what I did, I swear. So I never grew up feeling like I had to achieve something. I have no anxiety. I could give a fuck what anybody thinks about me. Forgive the language. I don't, <laughs> because I know the contents of my heart are here. And that's what they put in me. So I think that's it. Also, I grew up in a really rough neighborhood. So I, every day I left my house uh, to go to school, to go to work. I was a movie theater rusher. Uh, I I delivered newspapers like my mom, but I also um, worked at a Mr. Sub making sandwiches and I worked at a movie theater. So every time I left my house, I was worried I was going to get beat up. And so what was cool about that, and I'm super grateful for it, was when I was really young, I had to manage fear a lot. And so my brain just learned to manage it. And now you can't scare me, right? Like things don't scare me anymore. And I'm really grateful for that. So I, I don't look at any of my upbringing because I've had people as I grew up going, oh, that's so hard. I'm like, are you crazy? I had the best life ever. Like, I, I, I was free, you know? And I think that's what, but not to, over, not to belabor the mother thing, but I will just say this. When you're young, I don't, not everybody deals with this, but I know a lot of young boys deal with this um, in our neighborhoods. You, you don't know how to process your anger. And we were very lucky that back then no one was over-momming us You know, like now there's this, all this conversation about masculinity, but I feel like they're all missing the most important part, which is, which is how you, you don't suppress your anger. What do you do with your anger? Right. And all these conversations I hear about it now, I'm just like, no one knows how to talk to fucking little kids because I was that boy. Right. And when I was young, all my mother did was she, she wrote this poem on the back of a poster. Uh, that I had stolen from a movie theater. And she stuck it on the the inside of my front door of my house. This is 100% true. And she wouldn't let me leave the house. She would put her arm around me and she'd make me recite the poem out loud. She would never let me leave the house for years without me reciting this poem. And so one day I was with a group of my friends. Someone had made us angry and we were going to go do something about it. And I was a teenager, and it was one of those things that's really hard to walk away from, you know, once you cross that line. And then I was in the car, you know, a bunch of fucking boys in their hoodies and their bullshit and their their anger and their ego and all that. And this poem started to play in my head, like over and over and over again. And I was like, stop the car, I got to get out. Stop the car, I got to get out. And they're like, what? I was like, I got to go, guys. I can't do this. I got to get out. And it was the I had done stuff. It was the first time I was like, "Fuck it, I I can't. I got to change. I can't be this guy anymore." Now, I'm not lying. Like I continued down the path. Like in my life, it took me a long time before I really straightened up. But this particular moment with that poem, um, I think, was a crucial turning point in my life because I I got out of the car, and I, I I wouldn't have had that if my mother wasn't just throwing things at the wall, trying to figure out a way to keep me clean, right? Um, not clean drugs and alcohol, clean, like, with choices. And, uh, yeah, so, so I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons why I'm not super, I didn't go super down the wrong road. And um, she is the biggest reason. The other was punk rock. So punk and metal happened at a time when I was 12, 13, 14 years old for me, right? It was, like, punk started when I was about seven, five, seven, and... I very quickly found an outlet for my anger and my distrust of the system. So, you know, growing up the way we grew up, you still have, we were all hyper disenfranchised. Right. And Joe Strummer and Ari up from the slits and crass, all these bands made me realize, yeah, it's fucked, but there's a bad guy. There's a bad girl. And it's Reagan, Mulrooney, fucking Maggie Thatcher, right? Like there was a, there was a villain.
0: <laughs> and you're not alone that there's other people who are going through the same things as you. You were part of a community. Metal.
1: Yeah. Metal made me feel like I wasn't alone and punk. made me, Metal made me feel like I was going to be okay. And punk music made me want to make sure that you were okay. And those two things happened at a time when I was really impressionable and I Like, you know, it's confluence events and also just luck, like this fucking luck, you know, that I I did this one thing and it didn't go worse, that this one thing happened to me and it didn't get worse, you know, like just all this luck has to play into when you're 13 and fucking rugged like I was. And, you know, so I think that's why.
0: So, you know, I have a son who's 20 and I remember someone told me when he was six months old that I had to start telling him things that I wanted him to do when he was six months old. So that when he was 18 or 19 or 16, that he would make choices because they were already part of the way he thought. And it works. It worked, but you have to be consistent. You have to be consistent and you have to start when people are really young and it just becomes a way of thinking, which your mother already obviously did for you she did you know it's interesting because
1: (laughs) the poem is crazy it it said (laughs) the poem said i have to live with myself and so i have to be fit for myself to know i want to sit with the setting sun and not hate myself for the things i've done i want to stand and watch as the days go by and be able to look the world straight in the eye that's what she made me read all the time Isn't that crazy. It's craziness that it worked. But here's the funny thing about that. You're right that you have to start young and you have to be consistent. But she said a lot of things that didn't take, like none of the mm-hmm. Jesus stuff took, right? So Well, so, there's a reason for
0: that. <laughs> yeah. Right,
1: right. And thankfully, <laughs> thankfully music, so like honestly, if I didn't music have- Music
0: is your religion.
1: Oh, yeah. If I didn't have- All my fanaticism that was obviously part of my DNA um, was was channeled towards- music. It's one reason why I'm really challenging to artists and I have big expectations of them is because I truly understand the stakes and it's not about you and your success. Cause if it is that, then you fucking blew it and you're a nobody in the big picture, mm-hmm. right? You want to be a somebody help somebody make the right choice. I don't mean be pleasant. I don't mean all that shit, but you better realize that you matter more than just how much you made today and who you slept with and all that shit. Like that bores the fuck out of me. So, because I know holy, if I didn't have punk rock or metal, if I didn't get to Metallica and Slayer and Venom when I was 12 and the Clash and the Pistols, if I didn't get there or Patti Smith, I I don't think I would have liked the person I turned into.
0: (laughs) So when your first jobs aside from being a forklift driver and you know, those kinds of yeah. non-media related jobs were radio. So you worked behind the scenes. I heard you were a mascot dressing up as I think a lizard or something yeah. like that. Yeah, that's you, right, that's right, yeah. And yeah. You, you were on air, um, you had several on-air jobs um, and it was all radio. What You love radio, like what is it yeah, yeah. about radio that you love? You know, I mean, i I
1: I I don't want to bore you or your or, or your people watching with how overly philosophical I am about this, but I am this way about everything in life. That's the truth. Everything to me, I approach it this way. Um, to me, um, a, a television camera is a is a black hole, right? And you 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 look into it, and you just go into this thing. And of course, I came a, a, I came of age in radio, listening and on it when, like, television was a click, right? Radio was a dial, so you faded in and out. You faded in and out, and I always looked at a microphone. And always, this was a paintbrush, and I was wow. painting my part of all the voices that were on the radio tonight. And so, pe- as people tuned in and out, collectively we painted something really beautiful and weird and discombobulated. And but all it's all worked because people got in and out of it. Whereas television to me was never, I never thought about being on television. I never wanted to be on television. It was even, guys like me weren't on radio, never mind television, right? So um, I had no, not a single part of my, like I, I grew up watching Letterman thinking, fuck, that'd be cool. But of course not. Like I'm not a comedian and I have no interest in doing that stuff. Um, so radio to me was this beautiful thing. I used to call radio stations, talk stations when I was 11 to get on the air. I used to call music stations to request songs but I didn't even know you could do it for a living. So I was a movie theater usher in Rexdale at the Woodbine Center. And I was a teenager and I wanted to get my motorcycle license. So I went next door. We had a Humber College Adult Learning Center there to get the course calendar so I could fill out the form because they were given motorcycle lessons in the parking lot. (laughs) And as I took the, I was working at the theater and I was on my break and I was slipping through it. I saw radio production or radio broadcasting. And I went, ah, fuck it, I'll do that. That's (laughs) it, man. That's the whole reason I got into radio. My meeting at Humber College was four seconds long. I didn't think I got in. It was like most of my life. I don't, I'm not an ambitious guy in terms of career. I, d- I never thought about it. I don't care. I think that's part of the reason why I've been able to do this for this long is- Well, you I, do what I, you I, love. I do what I love. And also I have a very healthy perspective on what the thing I love is. Mm. So I don't expect- I made lots of choices in my career that would have prevented that had I made other choices, it would have been bigger. I would have been richer. All right, That was never interesting to me. I'm like, no, I'm going to win on my terms. And that, that was always the thing. It was just like, but, and this is what I mean about healthy expectations. I don't get mad at it when it isn't what, other people think it should be. It's like, no, no, I made my choice. I chose not to host that show. To get that, you got to do that. And I was unwilling to do that. So I don't then expect people to to come meet me at my, no, 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 I'm going to make my choices and people will dive in and out of my career. And that's cool. But at the end of the day, I'll be me the whole
0: way. So Denise Donlin, Mm -hmm. in her book, she talked about how you were, in quotation marks, discovered. You were on the radio. John Marshall, who was a friend of mine, was one of the uh, producers on the new music, knew you or had heard you on CFNY on the punk show that you were doing or the morning show that you were doing. And he was telling David Kynes and Denise to check you out. And so they they went after you. What was it like to, to be... Um, pulled into much music for them to to want you to work. And you, were, you didn't want to do television and they were saying, come and work for us. Tell me about what yeah. it felt like at that time for you. Yeah,
1: I think I remember Denise actually saying to me, so why do you want to be a VJ? And I said, I don't think that I do. Like in the meeting, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? Um, you know, I was hosting a show called Live in Toronto and a friend of mine, a record company guy called Steve Waxman calls me and said, hey, Byron Wong is leaving the new music. Do you want to go work there? And I just was like, I didn't have cable, so I didn't really watch much music unless it was a free weekend, right? Where, where we'd go to our friend's house when it was for free on the weekends. I, we, we never we didn't have cable as a kid. I didn't have cable until I was in my 20s, right? And I think I didn't have cable till I actually was like 25 years old. But I knew much music. I knew you. I knew Steve. And I used to listen to Steve Anthony. And it's one of the reasons I'm in radio was Steve Anthony used to host a show called The Steve Agony Show on Q107 when I was in high school. And we would run home to listen to them. So radio was important to me. So Steve calls me, he's like, do you want to wake up much? And I'm like, ah, fuck, I don't think so. And then, because at that time, I think it was very poppy, and that wasn't where my head was at. And he said, no, it's the new music, because Byron's leaving. And I went, oh, I would do that. Because I used to watch that show, because it was on City TV, and it was free, right? That's how I discovered the Jesus and Mary chain. And all, my, and all the clips I saw of Joe Strummer, when I said it, I found punk, it was I found it on the new music. And... These legendary interviews that Jeannie had done with Iggy Pop, right, changed my life. So, <laughs> I, so when, so, I, John, so Steve said here, call John Marshall. So I called John. He's like, let's. We, we met at a pub across the street on John Street. We we talked for a little bit, and it kind of went nowhere. But I guess in that, uh, but again, like I wasn't chasing the job, so I didn't call anybody back. I didn't have a demo tape. I didn't know anybody who had a camera, truthfully. So I didn't do anything. And then one day around just before Christmas time. I think it's before Christmas time. I'm doing my show called the Thursday 30 with the late great Martin Streak. And we were broadcasting on Young Street from Toronto. And they, they had like these stanchions where they would put them around the radio booth, right? I, I would always take them down and whatever kids were hanging out just come sit with us. Just because I understood the power of this, seeing somebody who cares about you, right? Because I had benefited from others. So one day there was this dude who's a little bit older. No, he's not old by any means, but he's older than the kids who's hanging around for like an hour. Creepy. And, and, yeah, and he was, and he was just watching, watching me work, watching the show. And he then says to me at the end of the night, as I'm closing up the station, he goes, hey, I'm David Kynes, I, you know, I, <laughs> I, I work at Much Music. And I was like, oh, I know who you are, because I'd seen his name, right, on the thing. He's like, so do you want to like, like, are you interested in this job at all? And I was like, I totally fucking forgot about that job, right, I actually totally forgot about that job. And he said, we we want to talk to you. So he said, do you have anything on tape? And I said, well, somebody had actually filmed an interview I did with Oasis. So he took that back. They called me in for uh, an interview. I had that exchange with Denise. And I was just like, yeah, cool. They tried to trap me, though, because they asked me, who don't I like on much music? Right? And I think this is where the radio benefit of radio. Did you say me? No, no, are you kidding? I'm never, I love you. (laughs) You, Agony, Williams, Teresa Roncon. I mean, this is like, you know, Simon Evans, like this is, you know, this is important. And um, you guys are important. And um, I said to her, I'm not going to tell you who I don't like. I'll tell you what I do like though. And I named Larissa Galka because I loved Larissa Galka on the air. She was on the air at the time. I talked about how I thought that Rick Campanelli is the most important broadcaster But Master T has the hardest job in all of Canadian television, bar none. And I I think they appreciated that I was a grown-up and a professional. And then they said, we're gonna take a couple of weeks, we'll make our decision. And I was like, yeah, cool, fuck, I love my job. I also didn't have the heart to quit my other job because I loved it. And I loved it my boss, who really, named Stu Myers, taught me a lot. And um, they said like a couple of weeks and they called me that afternoon. (laughs) That, that are the next well, they're playing really hardball with you. <laughs> totally. But here's the truth. I was so broke working in radio. I was making $18,000 a year. I was living with this a friend of mine, this woman, and we were just friends, but we couldn't afford any furniture, so our bed was a futon frame, no mattress, and a sheet. Like, we used to have to cuddle with just because we had no heat. We were so broke, and I hear I'm doing live in Toronto interviewing these big artists, and I'm could barely eat, you know? (laughs) It was so expensive living downtown. Um, And much music, I looked at it and went, I I can afford to eat if I take this job. They paid me, much paid me $65,000 a year. Wow. Which was the the game changer of game changers in my life. Um, And then actually, to be honest with you, I didn't know how to do television. I didn't give a fuck about it, right? So they put a camera on me and I just started talking. And I knew right away when I saw the tape back, I was like, Oh, I'm the same guy on TV that I am on the radio. Oh, I don't mm-hmm. give a shit. I'm still me. Oh, right. Because if you're you, you can't get it wrong. And that's how and that's how the much music thing happened. So it felt good, though. It felt
0: good. When you started on air, it was in 2000. So essentially, the way I look at it is that you were part of what I call much 2.0. Mm-hmm. So we were me and JD and Mike Williams and Christopher Ward, we were like the originals and John Martin and uh, Nancy Oliver were our bosses. And then you came in with new leadership, which was Denise and David. And you had the, the benefit of watching the Daniel Richlers and JD and Jeannie on the new music and, you know, the older VJs us sort of trailblaze and sort of define what, being on air at City and much was. So when you came in, what was your sort of mandate to do things differently? Because I'm sure you had some thoughts on what you wanted to bring that was different than what anybody else had.
1: You know, it's interesting that you asked it, Erica, because I didn't. And here's why. Because um, I, I'm i glad you mentioned Daniel. Daniel was the first, aside from Kermit the Frog, Right. <laughs> Daniel Richler was the first TV person that I saw that I was, I I thought this is the best, like this, the new music. I couldn't believe how fucking cool Daniel Richler was. Right. And Daniel, and again, because I didn't have the regular much music, I didn't have channel 29. I only had city TV. So all I ever saw was Daniel, Avi Lewis, Byron. And The Now, I saw you, Steve and everybody, Mike Williams, and I had the free weekends, and I loved what you did. But it never even occurred to me that I could do what you did. So I never even thought about it. I just went, what do you want me to do? I want you to do interviews. I went, cool. You want to play songs? Well, I can play songs. I know music. I knew I knew music, right? So, but it never, and and, and it's never, and this is, I think, a secret that anybody who wants to be in media should fucking pay attention to because it's, you know, there's the difference between a rule and a principle a rule is you have to do this and a principle is here's what works. This is a principle. And I've never walked into a place and thought, how do I make my mark? How do I do it differently? I've always walked into a place and thought, these guys are legends. And I'm here to make sure that their legacy is honored and that we continue to do this for the next crew because it was never about who the VJ was. What was always the thing about much music in my mind was the way the audience felt. And I, I recognized early on that I could feel music in a different way than you know maybe a lot of the people I had heard on the radio or watched on television. Like I was a music fan. And to me, I was always a caretaker a steward of what you had done before. Mm. And I never thought about trying to establish myself and maybe that's the hubris of not giving a fuck like I'm like I just know my presence alone is just I'm already winning like I'm here. Like <laughs> I have a dream job for people. When I got hockey night in Canada people were like oh you have the dream job and I'm like yo dude I hosted the new music. That's the dream job. I hosted the new music in my 20s like are you kidding? <laughs> you know that's the new that's my dream job and And so I never felt like trying to make it different, to be honest with you. What I did know though, where I was different was that pretty either poppy or alternative. And there wasn't a lot of room on air for people who liked heavy shit, metal and punk. There was still the old school British snotty punk connection to much, but there there weren't like heavy souls there. So when I got there and they offered me the new music, I said to them, I'll take it, but here's my condition. My condition is you let me host loud because I remember how important the power 30 was and the power hour was on much. And Teresa was a legend to us. And I'm like, and right now, all you do is play videos. And when you don't have anybody telling stories, it means you don't care. So I care about this music. Mm. Let me do it. So I knew then that I would establish myself as the heavy rock guy, the metal guy, the punk guy. And I knew that. So I knew strategically that was a good move, but it, I didn't do it strategically. I did it because I gave a shit about the music. Right. And so that's how the audience, so the audience always separated Rick and I not realizing that Rick and I were fucking buddies and, and Rick and I loved each other and we complimented each other. Um, and then master T was like a God. So we had these three, you know, hip hop, pop and rock covered, you know, it was good casting by much, but yeah, like I said, I never thought about what I could bring to it. What I thought about it was my duty, my responsibility to represent this kind of music that I know is important. And right away metalheads knew it like metalheads knew, Oh, there's one of us on TV.
0: Hey, seriously, you, you've used that word responsibility so many times. And yeah. I honestly have not heard that word come out of a VJ's mouth almost ever. And I felt it, I was sort of mired in responsibility. I understood that people were watching me every single minute and that I had to be, when I say on my best behavior, I didn't want to be otherwise. Like when I worked as a DJ in punk clubs, when, before you were born. um, I didn't, I never partied. I I wasn't a partier. I was, I was a, a curator. I was the one who picked the music. And I, when I went to much music, I also felt like the girls are watching me.
1: Fucking right. You had a way different pressure than I had.
0: They, yeah. I, but in a, it, almost in a good way. Yeah. The idea, for example, I used to get a lot of hate mail about how ugly I was and that my nose was way too big. And so my mom said to me, and so I said to my mom, should I get a nose job? And my mom said, you certainly can. Um, Just remember that if you get a nose job, you you won't look like yourself. You'll look good, but you won't look like yourself. And that's when I went, wait a second. I was hired because I look like this. And if I do that, that what I'm telling everybody else is that you need to look like everybody else. But the reason why I was hired was because I looked different than everybody else. And that was...
1: Right, but hold on a sec. How many letters did you get of people who were in love with you? Like way more than the ugly ones, for sure,
0: right? Actually, it was pretty evenly split. It it no. sort of changed. Uh, I had many fans at the in the penitentiary, so yes, lots of lots
1: of YouTube. <laughs> well, because I did the metal show. Like yes, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, but no, I, I a lot of the girls wanted to be me. And they were angry. They were like, why do you get to be it? Because I'm as good as you, which brings me to a really interesting sort of concept that Moses had when he hired us, because ultimately he did hire all of us. And he told me and told, I think everybody, you are no better than the audience. You are the audience and you better treat that audience with respect. And I, I watch you and I even listening to you now. You have such deep love and connection with your audience. So, but that happened now that I'm talking with you, it seems that that came to you naturally, even in radio, you already were taking the barriers down physically and bringing people close to you because much music would have been nothing if not for the people banging on the window.
1: hundred percent, hundred percent, you know, and I, and I guess it's because I never really looked at anything that I've done as my accomplishment. It's never been about my accomplishment because I know the myriad things that have to line up for you to get a break. I know that you need the grace of others. I knew that as a kid, I know that when we, I was a kid, you know, my mother would have to choose between milk and bread. And I remember strangers buying my mother bread because she chose milk and, or she, you know, like, so, my whole thing has always been like, yo, yo, dude, we're not, we are all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. Right. And the, the value is, you know, that like, forgive me for doing this, but you know, the Martin Luther King thing, the one thing that never slumps is service, right? <laughs> like you're to be in service of others, never slumps. So no matter where you are in your life, no matter how shit you feel, go out there and help somebody. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Right. So to me, anytime I accomplished anything, I, I never felt like I did it. I knew all the things, all the people that had to believe in me, even just to get me out of grade school. Right. You know, I got kicked out of high school for some bad behavior and in my final year, and I wasn't going to graduate and I had a teacher and I didn't want to take art classes. Cause that was elastic drama. Fuck that. None of that shit was my life. Right. I was going to be, I, like I said, I was a movie theater at the time. i like, ah, maybe I'll just be a manager. I wanted to be, I wanted to direct films, uh, but there was no, I had no idea how to do that. Like I said, I didn't even know anybody who had a camera. So we didn't have a camera. Um, so I got kicked out of school and my, I had to take, my art teacher wouldn't let me take art. So I was forced to take drama, which I didn't want. And my drama teacher said to me, look, you can't come to school. You're going to fail. You're not going to graduate, but I had him for two classes, and I had some another teacher for a third class, but all my classes were in portables. And my teacher said to me, They can stop you from coming to school, but they can't stop you from writing the exam legally. So why don't you come to class anyway? And I'll just mark you absent. And I'll talk to your other teacher and I'll get her to mark you absent. So as far as the office knows, you weren't here, but You're going to learn so that when you write the exam, you can at least pass. Because the exam was like two-thirds of the mark or whatever. So I said, cool, I'll do that. If Rob Ciccatelli, the teacher, didn't do that for me, where the fuck am I? Right? So I knew that when I'm on Much Music interviewing you two or whatever, I'm only there because Rob Ciccatelli (laughs) said, keep an eye on that kid. He'll be fine. And so, so I would never like those the, the problem, people in our business for the most on are base. And they act like they hit the triple, you know, we, we didn't, we all got somewhere because a whole bunch of people for whatever reason got on our side, not against us. And then the ones who were against us, all the belief in us, the belief inside ourselves allowed us to succeed in spite of them. So I think that's why I I always looked at it like a responsibility not from some weird sense of it's my duty. No, it's just shut the fuck up, do your job because there are people who need you today because while you're on TV, you know, or you're backstage, they're in jail. That's right. <laughs> and and the police probably fucked them over. So this is how I used to think. So like I'm not going to sit here and smile like look at me. No, fuck, that guy's in jail. Mm-hmm. I'm his one connection to Iron Maiden today. <laughs> So, respect that. Respect was really important to me with the audience.
0: So, what, how did, how did life change for you when, I mean, I remember when I walked down the street one day and I heard the sort of sounds like almost like a snake following me, like, and I realized it was people saying my name. They were whispering as I walked by. Now, you know what it was like in our office at Much Music. No one gave a shit who was on air and who was doing audio and who was a producer. We all just worked together. So there was sort of no hierarchy in terms of people being on air. So when I went from answering the phones or being the entertainment coordinator to being on air, it was just changing my job. Totally. And then one day I was walking down the street. I'd been on the air for a few months and like people were whispering my name and I'm like, what are people? (gasps) They recognize me. And that must have happened to you in some way because radio, they don't see your face. No. So how did your life change when people started to see you?
1: Well, this is where I think the luck comes into play. Um, my life
0: did change, certainly.
1: But when I was on radio, I was in a storefront studio. So I, for years, was engaging with audience there. And so in that little world, people would come. So I, started to, I warmed up to the idea that some people would recognize me. I get recognized at a concert or whatever. Again, it was very small, um, uh, but it was always about the thing. And what I realized a long time ago was that I'm not in. In my mind, I'm not in Motley Crue. In my mind, I'm in Black Flag or Fugazi. So the people, <laughs> so the people who liked me, right, in those early days, liked me because I liked the music they liked, and they're like, "Fucking cool, dude." So I didn't have to deal with the pop stardom that you did or, or or Rick had to deal with. Then the much music thing, you kind of blew up and I was doing five shows and, and it sort of exploded, but I never, it never really bothered me. Like I liked it. I had to, jo- I have a joy about what I do and I always have. So when kids are banging on the way, take a picture, I'm like, fucking right, let's go. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I had a, I have a good sense of humor about it. And I, I think because I put it all into perspective, I knew that this is nothing like to me. And this goes back to my mother's thing. I... I never equated that with success. You know, I never did. Honestly, if I ever, if I ever got paid with it, you know, so I'd be cool. And I think a big part of that was that uh, Denise Donlin and David Kynes and Tani NotChef, they were pretty punk as well in their ethos, different ways, you know. And so I just kind of followed them. John Marshall, same thing. John Marshall gave me a really good piece of advice. He said, look, your life's going to change and you're going to become famous. He said, well, here's what's important. Just keep your head down and do the work and don't try to become anybody's friend in here. Just do the work. It'll speak for itself. And I was like, hey, cool, I'll just do the work because that's all I ever knew. So I, I, I'm I, grateful to John for, the, for many, many things. Uh, that one was really important to me. But then I started to get swarmed uh, like you did. But I was the punk metal guy. So there are a lot of people who are also just kind of afraid of me. And so a lot of people wouldn't walk up to me, right? I remember being in a rancid mosh pit once and this guy didn't like something I said on the punk show. And it wouldn't have been my first fight in my life. So I was fucking here for it. Yeah, you want to go? Let's go. So I I never really had to be somebody else on TV. I think that's what screws people up is when they had to, when who they were on TV wasn't who they were in their real life. Mm. Because I was the same guy and still am, and it's been great in my career and been bad in my career, I... I never had to worry too much about it, but again, I was the punk metal guy. So the only people who walked up to me at the early days were just like, "Yo, fucking hey, you did this interview with this band or whatever." You know, um, I, I didn't really realize it, Erica until I traveled. I went to Edmonton once for a, a festival, right? And I've never uh, experienced anything like that. Like where I was, and not just me. there's a couple of us. We were swarmed in the in the in the stadium in a way that. But it was like. I just felt badly. I couldn't give as much time to everybody that I wanted to, but it was, it was crazy. But again, living in Toronto, like I live two minutes from much music and i my entire TV career in Canada has been on John street, which is my neighborhood anyway. So it never really felt too crazy because it's just, I'm, I'm just in my neighborhood.
0: Okay. I'm going to play you something. Speaking of your audience, we invite listeners to ask questions. And so I have one I'm going to play for you right now. Um, So hopefully you'll be able to hear it. Well done. Hi there. This is Kevin from Winnipeg. Uh, My name is
1: RockOx on Twitter. I have a question for George. Uh, Now, one of my favorite memories of George was uh, this one time he was doing the news or something, and he was just wrapping up, and he said something along the lines of, here's the top 10 album sales of the week, and let me tell you, I'm really disappointed in what you bought and I just thought it was awesome. So, so my question is, was that kind of dry criticism towards a lot of the, the mainstream music at the time, or, you know, not even that, like criticism of much music viewers and, and, their, and their buying habits, did George get any flack for that kind of commentary from either the higher ups or, or the viewers, or was that sort of thing encouraged? Uh, Thanks. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the new podcast. Have a great day. Thank you, Kevin. That's funny. Yeah, did did I say that? That sounds super like me, doesn't it? Oh, fuck. Look, I regret a lot of things (laughs) I said on the air. I made fun of a lot of artists, and I regret that. I do. Most of it. (laughs) Um, I did it. I remember it. I did it more than once. I did it partly as a joke. Um, I did it partly to show that much music had a point of view and that we weren't just in bed with the record companies and the artists, mm-hmm. right? I did it to be a dick um, as a joke again. Again, I've, I've had, I have apologized certainly to some bands over the years since I've seen since for what I said, but no, it was, never, it was never discouraged. I never once was told, don't say it. I was, I was not encouraged to be that way. But again, I I guess I always drew the line in the sand, which is if I felt the artist was authentic, I championed them. If I felt the artists who were topping the charts were inauthentic, and because I had a little bit of an insight as to what was happening behind the curtain, and I knew they were, we used to say they're lying to the kids. If the band was lying to the kids, I would have ripped them for sure.
0: I hated that. You know, I interviewed Red Hot Chili Peppers and they were, okay. Tell me what you think of this, right? I was interviewing them and they were swearing and, you know, being all sort of punk rock on camera. And then we'd go to break and they'd say, I'm so- oh, we're sorry. Was that too much? Should we just tone it down a bit? I'd say, yeah, guys, we're not allowed to swear. It's the olden days, right? Where you weren't allowed to swear. There's We we will have to cancel the interview. Okay, okay, we'll be much better. We go back on and they start again swearing so I said I'm sorry guys we have to end the interview you're idiots yeah because they were faking it on one end I don't know if they were faking it with me yeah behind the scenes or if they were faking it on camera but to me that was my least favorite interview because of that it was great tv yeah but them personally they're full of shit well now what year was that do you remember roughly Probably
1: 93. 93, yeah. So if you think about it, music television was only like 10, 12, 13 years old at that point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think there was certainly, the Chili Peppers were poorly behaved for sure. You know, I remember being in an interview with them and having one of the guys like me once, he goes, what, what are you asking? What are you, what are you, like being antagonistic for sure. Good for you for stopping the interview. If that's what mm. you felt was the right thing to do because you didn't think it was authentic. I thought you had to be authentic or, and again, I, I held on to that too much. I think I felt like, I was some defender of the faith, right? And I still feel that way, but I've softened a little bit about how I choose to do that. But I still feel the fight as much in me. Art is funny, because I remember one day I was doing a live at March one of those like intimate interactions with Kid Rock. And it was before, Kid Rock was fucking huge. And I'm upstairs in the boardroom with him. We we're just hanging around talking. I interviewed him in radio before I was that much. we were just catching up. And Denise came in. You got to tell him, he can't swear on the air. And I looked at her and said, I'm not telling Kid Rock that because it's rock and roll. You you gotta tell him. But I said, But I wouldn't. And she told him, Hey, you, you can't swear. And he's like, Of course, I totally respect it, totally respect it. And he looked at he looked at me with this wink and I was like, Here we go. First couple of segments, boom, 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 boom. Right. The swearing thing, I I totally no, but the swearing thing never bothered me, but the inauthenticity totally bothers me. I no, think they're was- pretending. It yeah, was pre- he was they were that.
0: pretending either on camera probably they were pretending um on camera to be right. bad boys because they were sucking up to me in between commercials just so everybody knows they were how sucking long, up to me
1: how did they handle when you ended the interview
0: they were like little boys who had been slapped on the hand and they were like well, what 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 you're, no. you're a
1: legend and they know who you are when they walk in there so but the chilies yeah the chilies are a strange brew aren't they Yeah.
0: Well, you know what? It's interesting how having met them and had that experience, I can't listen to their music anymore. And even my kids now. Yep. And my kids listen to them and I go, they're, they were idiots. (laughs) Don't listen to them. (laughs) Okay. I have another question. I have another question here. This is an this one is from another listener. And uh, now I know that you said that you have no fear and that you don't get nervous before shows. Kate Hepworth asked on Facebook, which artist intimidated you?
1: That's a good question. I don't know that I've been intimidated, but I've been aware. I remember when I had to sit down and interview Mary J. Blige. I'm a huge Mary J. Blige fan, and I knew that she had been, she had been painted as rather difficult publicly to talk to. And I had to interview her in a hotel in New York where she had smacked her boyfriend in the face or something. And so they had sent me down there not too long after that to do that interview. And I remember being aware of uh, I don't know how this is going to go. You know, I don't know how this is going to go, but I, I'm, I love Mary. So the, actually the interview went well, but you know, what's funny. It goes right back to the reason I was on Much Music in the first place. So I got the job in December. I didn't get on the air till April because I was about to enter ratings at my radio station. So I had to stay on radio till the end of the ratings book. because I didn't want to screw over my, my bosses. So I was that much music working behind the scenes, just getting ready. But really I just had to, my show couldn't air until I finished the ratings book. And I was trying to be really respectful to my bosses that I had worked at that, at the radio station. So then they say, Hey, we need you to go and do an interview in LA. I said, cool. Sure. I had been to LA since I was 19. And I loved LA. I was wanting to move there. I think I was 18. And they played me an interview of this artist freaking out. And they said to me, this is why we hired you. And I said, what? They said, we need somebody who, if it turns into a fight, can fight that's what they said we want somebody who can and it's not that they didn't have people who could do it already they needed somebody who that was their first language my first language was don't fuck with me right and I think they wanted that and so they played me that interview and they said you got to go to LA and you got to interview this guy that's why you're here I said you got to interview and also partly because I was older than most of the other um VJs when they hired me I was like 27 when they hired me, not a kid. So they they wanted somebody a little bit older who could sit across, which is weird to think that 27 was older, but to sit across from maybe some of these heavier artists who are a little bit more cantankerous. So I fly down to LA and I go and I sit in the studio to interview this guy. And he's waits, delay, delay, delay. He's 13 hours late. Like he's there, but he makes me wait for 13 hours to do the interview. What,
0: what were you sleeping, there. what, 13 hours?
1: Yeah, I just sat on the couch in the studio, I chilled out, I didn't care, I went for a walk. I, I love LA, I went for a while. hung around. And he said to me, i never met him. He said to me, I know who you are. I said, cool. He said, I know why you're here. I said, cool. He says, how's this gonna go? Cause he remembered the last time, right? That he interviewed, he had an interview like this. And I said, that's really up to you, man. That's really up to you. We can do it or not do it. I don't care. Much wanted people who, for me at that time, and I think part of it was that I was an edgier guy and they didn't want to subject. Who was
0: this person?
1: It was Limp Bizkit. It was Limp Bizkit, you know? Um, and I, yeah. And I was just like, honestly, dude, like, I, like, I don't give a fuck what a rock star is mad at me. I don't give a shit. Right. And I always had that attitude. And I think that's why. So, so, I've never really been intimidated, but I've always been hyper respectful, right? I always, and I think what's really important is that I knew that as famous as I would have got on TV, I'm not the guy that wrote the record. I'm the person that's connecting you at home to the man or the woman who wrote the record or the two spirit artists or the, you know, the I'm connect. So I never acted like I wrote the record. And I think they realized the artists realized quickly that I wasn't trying to get over on them. Like, I'm already here in the room. There's only two people here. You're one and I'm the other. We got nothing to prove. Now let's just honor the audience. Respect them, right? And I was able to say to artists, and even when I got my talk show, I would say to people, look, I don't care how famous you are. I don't care who I am. I don't care that my name's on the show. I respect what you've done, but here's what really matters. Somebody had the worst day of their life today and they're sitting at home. It's 11 o'clock at night. They got a shitty diagnosis. They're, at lo- they're alone for the first time on their couch because somebody left or they left. Um, if we can't help them go to bed feeling a little bit better, that doesn't mean placate them, but if they're not a little better, not a little smarter, not a little more engaged, then we fuck this up. That's our job. And the artist really responded to that. And that's, I think, how I became.
0: There's a word for that, by the way,
1: it's called empathy. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, Yeah. Right. Right. But empathy for the right person, which is the person who's, who's struggling right now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and I, I do have that, I suppose. Um, I have a very high EQ, but I don't have much of an IQ, and I grew up never valuing IQ. We, like, my marks were terrible. I think I can remember once in my life, my mother looking at my report card saying, should we talk about this? Be- because I was failing, or I can't afford university or college, so I'm not going. Um, I don't care about marks. I had a teacher once hit me on the head with a, um, a textbook, oh. and said, But I was grateful for it. He hit me hard. And he's like, and I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, what the fuck? And he kept hitting me. And I was like, stop it. And he said, your marks are so bad. Your test scores are so bad. He he said, but I know you know, Mm because you come. Right? And I said to him, his name was Elmo. I said, Elmo, Mr. Batson, but we called him by his first name. I said, Elmo, I don't care about school. I'm just trying to get out. I said, here's what I know is I know what you taught me. And I know how that will help me in my life. So you need to know, I know what you've done. What I don't care is what the provincial government thinks about my marks, because they're not gonna matter to me because I'm gonna be a forklift driver for the rest of my life. So why am I gonna put the extra effort in when it's irrelevant to me? And he just hit me again. He's like, well, fuck, just try harder. He passed
0: me, I got a 60. And I got out of the class. But you're you are, you're right. Like you you have super high EQ, which and you have obviously you're super bright because you synthesize information from around the world and it and you make it your own. So I'm curious, you said something about Much Music, that it was as meaningful a Canadian media moment, a North American media moment that has ever existed. Tell me what you mean by that? And did you, are you saying that from when you were in the middle of it or does that come with great perspective from years looking back? You know, I
1: knew before I worked there and when I worked there, how important it was for sure. Um, I wasn't able to, I was still relatively young. You know, it's with time I saw the bigger scale of media. You know, I went on to host my own talk show, I went on to do shows in the States, I had Hockey Night Canada, so I had my career, much music was only five years of my career, right? And when I look back, though, but even when I was there, it was, and, I, and you can see it today, is somebody, everybody talks this bullshit game that they care about the kids. And I I always was like, no, you don't. Because if you did, you would program better for them. If you did, you'd care. I remember, honestly, being at much when 9-11 happened. And I was the newsier guy. So they said, go on the air. Right? And I just watched the fucking plane go in, right? The second plane go in. And I was like, all right. And I remember the boss said to me, her name was Sheila Sullivan at the time. Sheila said, what are you going to say on the air? What are you going to say? And I was going to say, well, honestly, Sheila, I would just tell people turn much music off, go watch the news, come back later. And we'll talk about it tonight. And she said, that's exactly what we should say. That's who we are. This is important news. And I remember looking at Sheila thinking fucking a fucking a, that's responsibility. She got it. And No network does that, right? No network does that. So I went on the air and said, change the fucking channel. That, my manager, who's now my manager, who's in LA, that's the thing he saw. Oh, wow. Right? He's like, who does that? And I'm like, yeah, this is a special time. So when we would play videos that had hypersexuality in it, they would host a show called Too Much for Much, where they wouldn't denigrate the artist for being sexual
0: no but you contextualize it mm-hmm.
1: that's it Love that's it. when I realized the difference between being a curator and a contextualizer mm. because what they were doing was explaining to kids hey look this woman is empowered this is what she's doing but not just explaining it to young girls because I get why that's important and I'm not dismissing that at all but going back to what I was saying all the, the earlier someone had to explain this to young boys yes of course. Right. And I used to have a picture of Heather Thomas on my wall. She was in the fall guy. It was a show that I loved. And I was at the Toronto sportsman show when I was like 12 and they gave me a poster of her. She was wearing a bikini and I put it on my bedroom wall. And I came home from school and my mother who had normally ripped my heavy metal posters off the wall, the satanic stuff. My mother took thumbtacks and one of my shirts and she tacked the shirt on her. So the way she'd be, she was posing like this, whatever my mom tacked the shirt on her body on the wall and I took the the shirt off and my mom would tack it on the next day she didn't get mad at me she just kept tacking the shirt on and one day I said to her what are you doing and she said you don't get to look at women like that you don't get to look at women like that right and I was like what are you talking about she chose to do it she goes yeah she chose to do it but you're too young to understand it she's not your wife She's not your girlfriend. You don't get to look around, walk around expecting women to dress like that for you. So this is my mom, 20, she's at this time, maybe she's 30, right? So she's, and my mom is like not a, she's a religious woman, conservative woman. She does not consider herself a feminist, but my mom taught me all this shit when I was a kid. So even though of course I looked at naked women and all that stuff as I was a young boy and you would steal porn or whatever you did. But as I was getting older and the internet started, we had this hyper pornification of the culture and having the experience that I had learning different things and so lucky. And this is another reason why much music was so important is that until I worked at sports, I never worked in television where it wasn't essentially run by women. So I worked for Denise Donlin, or Sheila Sullivan, or when I worked for David Kynes, I worked with Tanya Notchef. So I worked, And then I got to CBC and I worked with Jen Detman and Kirsten Stewart. So I only, I I got lucky to be in this window where I was taught very early that if I said something on the line that would have come across as piggish, not even thinking it, I was corrected. And I was corrected by people that I really respected. Like Denise Donlin's a fucking legend and I respected her immensely and luckily, Denise didn't have to correct me. But if I had language that, ex- that exposed my inherent bias, there were enough people around who would just guide. Not chastise, but guide. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, I look at that time in Much Music going, yeah, fuck, nobody had this. Also, nobody was talking to that many teenagers at once. YTV was important as hell, but it was a little yeah. younger. And we... It also wasn't as brave. It was, it was a different thing for sure. Well, yeah. because it was owned by a different company. Like we, right. were, we were owned by a family, right? Like we were owned by a family. And I remember going in to see Alan Waters, you know, and, you, and Jay Switzer was there and his mom Phyllis was, so like, I, I, I just got a real sense that it's like, no, no, this is how we do things here. And the thing that was really, really important. That much and why it was way more important than any other television network, and I will fucking fight anybody on this, more important than MTV, was it was the first network, because it was City TV to me Connected, where ethnic people kept their names, where women were on the air as themselves, dressed casually, showing their arms, where a black guy was on the air with locks, and nobody was... Nobody was the only one, like it was a collection. It looked like the city I grew up in. And I think that everybody played catch up to what Moses and Phyllis and Jay and Denise and David and John John did, right? And there's never been anything like that. There was never anything like that before. Um, and that window of time. Like I've done a lot of things in my career that were way bigger in terms of audience than much. It's the, but it's the thing that most people talk to me about is much music. Is that right? By far. Like people say, I wish you were doing an interview show, but most of them remember the much thing. And they were too young to have watched me on much, but there was just something about, and here's the other reason why sort of ramble on Erica, but I, I care so deeply about this is that, What most youth-based media does, and social media especially does this, it is the whole purpose of the algorithm, is that it reflects your life back to you. It is relatable. We endeavored to create a slight connection to aspirational. And aspirational wasn't get this car, get this watch. Aspirational was... Be smarter, be more connected. Vote. We were interviewing artists who were trans on TV in the year 2000, right? Like, who the fuck else was doing that in youth television? Nobody. Much music was, but I, I didn't bring it to it. But our bosses did. So we had to we had to live up to that. Nobody was doing what much and, and City TV were doing.
0: Okay, you have been known to say that uh, mainstream broadcasters uh, have not been evolving quickly enough or at all, (laughs) I would say at all. So I'm going to, I'm
1: I'm going to play a little game
0: with you. They've made headway. Okay. But here's the game. I am going to make you the boss of unnamed mainstream media. I'm going to give you the keys to the car and you could do anything you want. What are the few, the first changes that you would immediately implement to make this the media or the broadcast that that is missing right now?
1: I would be very clear, and I'm relentless about this in every aspect of my professional life now. Um, You have to be, it is inclusive, not exclusive, but this is not about telling people that everything is Okay this is about showing people that they make things okay that we make things okay so i would structure the content and the team around similar warriors of the heart right who want to go out there and as i i joke on my instagram live streams you know i got i got heavy fists but i got a warm heart and and that's a strange dichotomy because i it's easy for me to be negative and gnarly i have to work to not be i have to work to not default to aggressive. I don't mean like physically. And I would construct the team that way. The thing about much was that it was diverse, of course, diverse ethnically and gender, but it was also diverse in opinion. Mm-hmm. But what was not diverse was, what's the right side of history? There were values. And so I would implement the right side of value, of history values and if you can't get there, this isn't the place for you. No channel works unless the team, I, I wish everybody in our could work at MuchMusic one year culminating in the MuchMusic Video Awards weekend. Because- <laughs>
0: Chaos. What have,
1: chaos, but the whole building comes together
0: mm-hmm.
1: and puts on something for the city. Much as ratings were never that huge, right? They did something for the city. They did something for the country. They did something for the artist. I, I I walk by Queen and John all the time. And those windows were boarded up and turned into something else. And I'm fucking angry about it all the time, right? It's nobody's fault, but I'm angry about it. I'm sure it is somebody's fault. But um, I, because it matters. It matters. Now it's different because everybody's connected on social media, but still no one has real contextualization.
0: Well, no that's, really that. that's the thing is that, yes, everybody is connected, but there is no central meeting place and there's no sort of curators anymore. YouTube, there's no curator for YouTube. No, there's no curator. Okay, well, you are actually a curator on Apple. Tell me about this new, new show that you're doing.
1: I was in LA and I was getting ready to go take another show. I was, I had taken a few years after the hockey thing and to, to build up a music thing here because much wasn't doing it anymore. So I started welcoming bands in
0: my house because much wasn't doing it. This is wait, let's kind of stop you right there. Sorry. You are putting on shows in your house and you invite strangers, the audience Mm -hmm. into your home. Can we just talk about that for just a quick moment? Sure. How did that happen? I walked by
1: the edge one day. I walked by down Yonge street past the Eaton center in Toronto past what used to be the radio station where I had all those bands in with the kids who kind of hanging out. I, I looked at it and it was like a fucking home and candle store or some bullshit. Like we need more home and candle shit. So I was like, whatever. And I walked, I made a right onto queen street and I was walking and I passed by much music and it had been boarded up. And I looked at it and went, and so just the alchemy of, I walked by my two places where yeah. I worked and I thought, where does anybody get to do this anymore? And I thought, my house. So I called a couple of people. I said, I'm going to do this at my house. They went, cool, bands? Do you think you'd get them? I said, sure, yeah, but also fans. And they said, how? I said, I'm just going to go on Instagram and tell people where I live, come fucking down. And they went, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. But I, I honestly went on my Instagram and I said, hey, if you love Jimmy World, meet me here. This is the first time, right? One of the first times we did it. And I, I just sort of forgot I did it. <laughs> like I knew I did it, but about two hours later, I was like, oh fuck, I should go to, I had everybody meet me at a park right by my house. I opened my front door and there's a lineup of people. And I went, all oh, right, 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 of course. So they came in, Jimmy Eat World is in my basement. They came upstairs and they played. And I took a look at everybody's faces, the looks in their eyes, and I thought, right, I used to see this every day at Much Music. So I said, mm-hmm. fuck it, we're just gonna do it here with the audience. And then the cult came in and played a concert. Robert Plant came in. John Prine came in and played to fucking to, oh to Gordon Lightfoot, who started crying. Mixmaster Master Mike, Grandmaster Flash. Um, I, fucking Peaches came in and played a, sh- a set on my fucking, on my Daniel Lenoir came in. And I'm looking around and I'm thinking, yeah. And then the Hustle Scramble thing just sort of happened. So I go to I go to LA and I'm about to take so the house of thing had grown. People were starting to pay attention to it. And uh, I got a call. Hey, do you wanna I was gonna go work at this other place, a big company. I was like, yeah, this is my next show. I'd taken a few years. I'm this is my next show. Then I got a random text message from somebody I know really well at Apple, somebody whom I love dearly. And they said, Would you go in and meet with Zane? And I respected Zane like crazy. Who is that? Zane. Zane, So Zane Lowe is this legendary BBC uh, radio host who is now running Apple Music and Beats One. And I, I, like I used to listen to Zane when internet streaming first started, I was listening to Zane's show. Turns out he was listening to my show at the time because we, because we were very similar backgrounds. So we, we found each other online and I, and I got to meet Zane. And then I went back and Zane said, Hey, we're working on this project. Would you come do it with us? And I said, what is it? He said, well, you know, it's, they didn't want to say too much because Apple's very secretive. But he said, it's this music thing. We want you to be the voice of this thing and do this. And I went, cool. And he goes, what's your contract status? No, I'm already negotiating with another place. And I said, well, I'm close to another place. So if we're going to do this, we got to do this now. And he's like, let's do this. So I get out and I call my manager and I said, I think you should get on the phone with Apple. And the thing is this, it is the closest, it is the only time I felt this since I worked that much, the way they approach music and arts and and artists and the audience. It's the closest I felt to that thing where, Hey, no, what you do fucking matters. Like the audience matters. The songs matter. And I, and that's how it's now. Here's the thing, Erica, we started this in January, but we were going to launch it very soon after that, but then COVID hit and, you know, there was a lot of uprisings around the world and the people at Apple very much like that nine 11 experience I had said, no, no, let's not launch. This is not the time to go public with, with a big shiny new product. No, no, no. Let's just be there for the audience. When the times where we don't want to just show up like, Hey, look at us. No, the world's on fire. Let's be there. And I was like, really? That's you seriously fucking. I think you're right. But let, so we kept delaying it and delaying it. So we kept it a secret for eight months eight months before we ended up launching. I started You, ha- you the had jan- to keep that secret for eight months? I started in January. There's a lot of people who work in the world and no one knew. No one, no one talked about what was happening because um, we knew it mattered, but we also knew that it wasn't the right time to do it. And every time I would talk to the Apple people, I would get this fucking humanity back on the other end of the phone. And I was just like, how crazy is this? So what exactly is a show? So it's a, it's a daily music uh, show we're on in 165 countries. It's, it's radio, but it's on a new station. So there's three channels, Apple Music One, Apple Music Country, Apple Music Hits. So I, I, I anchor the hits thing during the, the afternoon. And I'm on with Jay Donovan, Estelle, Huey Lewis. Uh, the, the, my lead-in this week is Bruce Springsteen, who has a show. Snoop, Shania Twain, Alanis Morissette. We just go on. Mark Hopp is from Blink. We go on the air every day. Savvy's got an easy hit show. Loki's got hip hop. And I do it from right here where I'm sitting in my home. This is where I do it from. I, my, my DJ mixer and I just fucking play songs and I talk and we're on 165 countries. It's commercial free. It's free. The audience can get it for free. I want them to sign up to Apple Music so they can get our on-demand stuff and all this other stuff that we do. But the whole time Apple was like humanity and discovery is very important to us. And I've worked at companies before where they talk a big game, but once you get in close at shifts, they're they're always humanity discovery. Look, they're an incredibly successful company, right? Hmm. They don't need, you know, they're making lots of money, but they understand that this is important too. And live, so I'm live every day. So we do interviews and the stuff will go, video goes online and all that. But our, our hub is this show called Strombo 165 countries every day on hits. And I'm having the fucking best time. I loved my show on CBC. I love doing a talk show. I'll do an interview show again in my career. I'll do that. I I enjoyed segments of Hockey Night in Canada for sure. But I've not felt like this since I worked that much. And and what's the common denominator? A network and managers and team who cares about the audience and the artists. And what's the other thing? is we're around music. It's all about music and culture. That's fucking dope.
0: Before I let you go, I need to celebrate you a little bit. You're the ambassador for the World Food Program, which was recently awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. You're on the board of directors for Artists for Peace and Justice, for which you were given the Changemaker Award this past month. How do you decide... Which of these nonprofits to support, because I'm guessing that you have a lot of people who are knocking on your door because you do have a big heart. How do you, how do you decide?
1: Um, A lot of it is if somebody who's asking me to be a part of it, if I trust them, that's a huge part of it. Cause I don't want to ask people to be involved in something if I don't trust it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I got to believe in the people. Um, The cause is, of course, important. But to me, all this stuff is just equality, equity, justice. This is like what the baseline should be. So I do all this because Joe Strummer taught us no input, no output. Right. And I I just sit and look and go, I believe in this. I believe in that. And here's the other thing that I do. I try to align myself with organizations who are dealing with issues or causes that have no connection to me whatsoever. Because there are lots of people who work with charities that they are personally connected to. My mother had this, so I'm part of this. Or I suffered from this, so I'm part of this. I respect that, 100%. But I don't need to be connected to something. I don't have to have a personal connection to it to care. So not that anybody else. So I just sit back and go, where can I be of the most assistance where can I fill a gap? You know, when the, when the World Food Program asked me to work with them, I said no for a year. Because I had been in, you know, I'd been in war zones and I'd been in, in places with abject poverty around the world in, in, the, in the global south, right? The developing world. And I'd seen what NGOs do and it's not always good. Sometimes it is. But I talked to Stephen Lewis about it and I said, what do you think of the World Food Program? He said, look, if you're going to be involved with anybody in the UN, this is the crew. And I had seen them in Zambia and i had seen them when I was in Darfur. I went to Darfur during the genocide with uh, a couple of people, Rain made it from Our Lady Peace being one of them, Dr. Eric Hoskins another. We didn't go there as part of any really official situation. We went there to, because we didn't want to sit idly by. So we just went there and we had a fixer who kind of bribed our way onto a world food program plane to get us into this war zone. And we... I looked at the work they did and went and yeah, they do good work and they do meaningful work. And so I just kind of went, this feels right. This feels right. I can't do everything, but I do a lot. I try to do a lot like you do. We all try to do what we can. Um, but a big part of it is I give, I care about, I, I mean, the word, you know, the, the most vulnerable, that phrase there, they are vulnerable, but I, I, I tend to use the word, oppressed or compromised because it's almost never through fault of their own. Mm. Haiti, I worked in the, with APJ in the Haiti organization. For whatever reason, I was obsessed with Haiti as a kid. I used to read books written by Haitian artists or uh, authors when I was 14, 15. When I went to Humber College for radio, my elective, I took Caribbean literature. I grew up in a very Caribbean culture, uh, like my neighborhoods, Rexdale and Walton. So you know, I knew the difference between the East Indies and the West Indies, right? And I, so, so Haiti, and so when the Haiti charity became, I was like, yes, of course, I, of course I care. World Food Program, it's like, yeah, I understand the role of colonization and how it's impacted people in Africa. So I have benefited from colonization. Mm-hmm. My family came to a country that's had Medicare in part because of colonization and what's happened. And I know the evils of what we've done here, the, the colonizers, and I think honestly, to me, Erica, it all comes from punk rock. It all comes from punk rock, which is just people have blazed the trail before you, like you did for me on television. And I look at these artists and they go, there's another way to be. And then it occurred to me a long time ago that if you're famous for whatever, whatever that means, what it really is is people shining a light on you. Mm-hmm. And you would be best served to deflect that light into areas of the room that need more exposure. If you leave it on you, it will burn you up. And I started to deflect it to other places, you know? And I learned from Denise and I learned from Tanya and I learned from Joe Strummer, Chuck D, George Carlin, like these people who were gods to me. And it was just like, it's meaningless. It's meaningless to make this about you. And I guess that goes back to my my old lady too, to my mom Um, and my uncle Paul, who's really the guy that introduced me to music and made me care about music. So to me, there were never causes or charities. It was just like, hey, this person needs a fucking hand and you have been privileged enough to have this many hands. Go fucking use your hands, right? So to me, it's just blue collar work, (laughs) you know? It's just blue collar work.
0: George, I adore you. I wish that I had had the opportunity to work beside you, but now I get to bask in the glow of George. And I I really, I think that uh, you, what you've said, hopefully will resonate with so many people. I love the idea of giving to other people. I mean, giving of yourself to other people. That's what you do. That seems to be the common thread in everything you do is you give of yourself. Well, it, I do I
1: do, do that. And I think this is a really important thing. I was trying to explain this to young broadcasters when I talked to them. I'm like, listen, trust me, because I've been there and I'm here. I say to them, all the things you want with profile, you know, money, access to this, or, or, you know, if you want to date something, you want access to strangers, you want it, whatever you want, right? You're going to get it anyway. Like being, having a public profile is a target more than, a benefit if you do it wrong. Mm. So all the shit you want, you want to get laid, you want to get paid, you want to drive a car, you want to. I got motorcycles, right? I don't have kids. I have bikes. I have like six motorcycles. And my friends are like, Why do you have so many bikes? I'm like, Because I didn't have kids. I chose bikes, right? <laughs> so, so yes, I do care deeply about all this other stuff, but I've also benefited. Like I've got paid to do what I want for a living. Like, this ain't work, right? It's a lot of hours. But it's not hard. So it's not all altruistic. What I've done is just take the fucking, I looked at the perks and went, holy fuck, I I love what this is. But Jesus, if I just
0: make this about me, I'm going to blow this, right? What kind of a life, but what kind of a life is it if it's just about you? That's absolutely empty. And music, you know, if you make music and nobody listens to it, what is the use of music? It's the same thing.
1: The people who talk about, you know, a lot of young artists when they are coming up, well, especially in the hip hop game in the 90s, you know, Tupac named himself, you know, Machiavelli. And everybody, I get people talking about the Machiavellian tendencies that you have to have to be strategic to get what you want. And I have to remind them because I feel like no one's read the book. And I'm like, Machiavelli died in exile. Like, if you're gonna talk about him, talk about how it ended. Mm-hmm. And it's nobody benefits and this is the other thing, and I think it goes back to why I do this, is how I view it all. I never felt like I was building a career. I never felt like I'm building a thing. What I try to say, because legacy comes up a lot when people interview me only because I've been around a long time. And I try to tell them the most, like the people with the most legacy in the city are people I've never heard of in that. Queen Street. Who are the construction workers that paved that road? Mm Look at everything that has existed because of that road. Every city has that road. There were that road. The way I view legacy is not that I build a building with my name on it is there's a stretch of the road that people paved. And then I'm going to pave my stretch. Like you paved yours. Then the next crew will pave theirs. All the benefits you want from that. You're getting them anyway, but in 50 years from now, nobody will ever remember us. It doesn't fucking matter. What matters is, did you pave a stretch for someone to come afterwards? It's okay that you had your nice fancy house on that road, but it'll get turn, t- torn down and turned to a condo anyway. <laughs> it's fucking impermanent, and that's and that's why I, I sort of that's how I've sort of done this thing.
0: George, thank you so much. Um, really. I can't thank you enough. These are the kinds of conversations that start, you know, based on originally about much music and, and we're having a philosophical discussion on, oh, uh, on future. So uh, thank you thank again. You. And thank you for everyone who has stayed right to the end. The show uh, George can attest, we do it for you. Yes. Uh, it's great to have the conversation, but it's so important. I I could hear George talking. I could tell that you're talking for the person who's listening right now so that they get something that they can hang on to. And now it's time for those of you or for you who is listening to respond with the uh, return the favor. I want you to call in and I want you to give us feedback on the show. I want you to tell us what else, who else should be on the show, what we should talk about, what's working for you, what's not working for you. And there's a phone number you can call. The number is 833-972-7272. Kevin from Winnipeg used that number and he got on Mm -hmm. the show. So you can too. The number again is 833-972-7272. And uh, hopefully we'll hear from you. And if you're not like a phone dude or a a gal, that's fine. Um, You can reach me on all of my social platforms on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. Just look for Erica M. I'm everywhere. Thank you so much, George, for a crazy cool conversation. Remember Thank to you for t- having me. Thank <laughs> Remember, you. I can't and,
1: wait for you to watch to interview Rachel and Rick.
0: And okay, well, I've already yeah. I've already talked to to Rick, and he was fantastic. And everybody has to tune in to your show on Apple. That's uh, Monday to. Thursday from five to eight on Apple Music Hits. And for those of you who stayed right to the end, I will see you next week with another episode of Reinvention of the VJ. Here's to living a life filled with music, meaning, and many reinventions.
1: Thanks for listening. Follow Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ podcast. Subscribe and follow more episodes. Click to reinventionofthevj.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga.